Today, obviously, this is Palm Sunday. Christians all over the world are celebrating what's come to be known as Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Good Friday, which um, actually started out as God's Friday, just like uh, Christmas, Christ's Mass, and then the words were contracted, Christmas, Good Friday, and of course, we know that it, uh, it wasn't really a good day for Jesus, but it was a good day for everybody else when he died on the cross for the sins of the world. But uh, this is the day 2,000 years ago, roughly, give or take, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey while a multitude of people had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover and unleavened bread. And they crowded along the roadway waving palm branches and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we usually do at least one song on this day with that theme, Hosanna, which they sang just a little while ago. But, you know, for them, this was part of their big Passover celebration, feast. And certainly we have a lot to celebrate today, but to call that day our celebration is somewhat convoluted, topsy-turvy, because what we call the triumphal entry, I was impacted many years ago when I heard J. Vernon McGee say, no, it's, it's not the triumphal entry, it's really the tragic entry because it was uh, on this day some 2,000 years ago that the people of Israel totally missed their Messiah, embracing him not as the Prince of Peace, the King of Hearts, the Savior of their souls, but as the son of David, a warrior king, who would defeat the Romans and drive them out of Israel. That's what they were hoping. That's what they were expecting. That's what they were celebrating on that day. So they totally missed the whole purpose of Christ's first coming. But in spite of all that, for those who put their faith and trust in the Prince of Peace, there's much for us to celebrate. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time today when we can look at the triumphal entry or tragic entry, whatever we want to call it, as Christ rode into Jerusalem on the donkey on the Sunday before Good Friday when he was crucified. Lord, may we learn and gain a deeper understanding of what took place on that day, the importance of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in the Gospel of John today. This is John's account. The other Gospels also have their own accounts of this day uh, when Christ rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. But this is John, the Apostle John's account. And so we'll pick it up in verse 13 of John 12. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Notice, they're referring to him as the King of Israel. Why would they take palm branches? Interesting, in ancient times, the palm branch, it's been a symbol of fruitfulness, obviously because the, uh, the palm trees, the date palms were a major source of uh, sustenance for people in the ancient Middle East. Fruitfulness, triumph, victory, uh, what they would do, the people would do when a king, a conquering king would come home from battle, uh, the people would line the streets and wave the palm branches uh, as a symbol of victory for the returning king. And uh, there's even a country song, country gospel song called Palms of Victory. It's a pretty cool song if you want to look it up sometime. But, so for the nation of Israel, 
whose leaders not only rejected Jesus as their Messiah, but would go on five days later to crucify him. Uh, this day, even though the people were looking at it as a day of victory and triumph, it was actually, particularly for the leaders of Israel, the, the day of their greatest defeat and humiliation. But the people, again, were looking at Jesus, hoping that he was the son of David, which he was and is. But they were looking for that military Messiah. Hosanna, you probably know this, but it means save now. But the people were not referring to the salvation that comes from the forgiveness of sins. Again, they were looking for the salvation from the Romans, uh, from all of their oppressors. They were looking to be saved from foreign occupation, and they were looking to have the throne of David reestablished. So they were quoting from the Hallel in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now. But it wasn't the kind of salvation that Jesus came to bring. Matthew 121, she, Mary, of course, will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know, and of course, that's become kind of a mocked term among non-believers when someone might say, hey man, have you been saved? They might say, saved from what? What are you talking about? And they look at it as just some kind of a goofy Christian terminology to be saved. But we're told right here, the prophecy to Mary, that her son, Jesus, would save his people from their sins. So when somebody says, what do I need to be saved from? We need to be saved from our sins. Why? Because the wages of sin is death, according to the book of Romans. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek... You know, oftentimes we hear people say, hey, I found God. And you might say, well, I didn't know he was lost. It's really the other way around. We don't find him. He finds us. We're the ones that are lost. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save, save that which was lost. Because without the salvation that he offers, we are lost and we will ultimately face death apart from God, apart from Christ. All men are lost in sin and destined to spend eternity in a place of punishment and torment. That's what the Bible teaches. But the Bible also teaches that that place of punishment and torment was not created for man. It was created for the devil and his angels who rebelled against God. And thankfully, we have a choice. We have the final word on where we go when this life is over. We can choose God. We can choose Christ. We can choose life. Or we can choose to go it on our own. And I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. So Jesus came to seek out those who want to be saved from this horror and save them and save us. So, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. So the people, as I mentioned, are quoting from a messianic passage in the book of Psalms called the Hallel. Psalms 118.26 Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So there, in fact, they are acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah. The problem is they don't really understand who the Messiah is or was intended to be. First of all, the literal Son of God. And they also did not understand what he came to do to save them, not from the Romans, not from their other oppressors, but to save them from their sins. And they were just like many people today who acknowledged Jesus as a good man, a godly man, a great teacher, 
uh, of spiritual principles. They'll liken him to people like Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, the Dalai Lama. But they refuse to bow their knees to him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords who died on the cross and rose from the dead for the sins of the world. Now this goes back a ways, but my suspicion is that if anything, the numbers would be even higher than they were in 2008 if they were to take the same survey today. But back in 2008, December 2008, just before the new year, uh, the Pew Research Group did a poll that found 65% of American Christians, including 47% of evangelicals, that's pretty close to half, do indeed think that many different religions can lead to eternal life. Interesting. Because Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. And so when those who are considered to be the very core of the faithful followers of Christ are now embracing this idea that there are other pathways to heaven, that's part of what we call universalism, that all pathways lead to God, all pathways lead to heaven. That's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. Now, if you choose not to believe it or to embrace it, that's your choice. But to claim to believe in him and to be a follower of Christ and yet deny his own words that he's the only way, it's kind of a scary thing. 47% of evangelicals, 65% of American Christians believe that many different religions can lead to eternal life. And among these Christians, 80% cited one non-Christian faith as a route to salvation. And 61% named two or more. So it's very important for me today as, as I'm talking to you over the internet to remind you that even though that may be a prevailing belief and attitude in our world today, it is not biblical, it is not true, it goes against the very word of God, and so you have a choice today to believe in him, believe his words, or believe in the, the words of men. I would discourage you from doing that. I would encourage you to trust God, to trust the truth of his word, and even as we refer to this day, Palm Sunday, as the day of his triumphal entry, I would encourage you to let him triumphantly enter your own heart. Let's move on to verse 14. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written. Such a key phrase that we find, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, over and over again, Matthew emphasizes that Jesus, one of the primary proofs that he is truly the Messiah, the prophesied Messiah from the Old Testament, the one sent by God to be the Savior of the world, is that he fulfilled so many Old Testament prophecies, as it is written. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies when he came to this world the first time. And it absolutely proves he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, as it is written. And we'll see what that Old Testament passage is in just a moment. Verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And this parallels Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a foal, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
And so as it is written, hundreds of years before Christ came, he fulfilled this prophecy from the Old Testament. And again, it was one of over 300. And I want to mention something as we look at this scenario. Why is Christ riding into Jerusalem on a donkey rather than walking in or riding on a horse? They did have horses too. They weren't as common as the donkeys. But what would happen? A king in a time of war would ride a horse. Makes sense. It's a real good steed to be riding in time of battle. A good, large, strong animal to sit astride of. And so when they would go out to war, they'd be riding on a horse. They'd return on that horse. We'd have the palm branches for celebration, assuming they won the battle. But in times of peace, the king would ride on a donkey. And so Jesus is presenting himself. And by the way, this is the one and only time that Jesus really officially presents himself to the nation of Israel as their Messiah. All throughout his three-and-a-half-year ministry here on earth, he always downplayed it. He kept it very low-key. He wanted people to hear that inner voice of the Holy Spirit to discover for themselves who he truly was and is. And so he never made a big deal about being the Messiah. But on this day, he did officially, not through his words, but through his actions, present himself to the nation as their king, as their Messiah. And he rode in on the donkey because he didn't come to wage war, military war against Rome or anyone else. He came to wage war against the devil and against sin and against death. And he came to bring, bring peace to the hearts and minds of men and women and boys and girls. This scripture, Zechariah 9.9, prophesies the mission of the Messiah at his first coming. It is a mission of peace and salvation. And so when it became obvious to the people he wasn't going to rise up, he wasn't going to raise up an army, he wasn't going to defeat the Romans, they pretty much walked away from him except for his few faithful followers so the first coming, they totally misunderstood and probably really didn't understand that there would be two comings. The first coming, which took place 2,000 years ago, and the second coming, which is coming soon to a planet near you as we're in the midst of this unprecedented worldwide pandemic shutdown and so forth. A lot of people, even people who wouldn't identify themselves as believers, are looking at this as a very apocalyptic type of a situation. I talked to my brother in uh, Nevada here a few days ago. He's a believer. He was actually in uh, Special Forces quite a number of years ago, back in the 70s. And uh, Army Special Forces had some pretty interesting top-secret missions that he won't really give me any details about. But he was just going on and on about how this is the apocalypse, man. we got to get ready. And certainly, it has those overtones. And we do know the Bible says the closer we get to the very last days, the seven-year tribulation that's coming upon this world according to Jesus and other New Testament writers, that it would be like birth pains, that these kinds of signs would get closer and closer together. They would become more and more intense. I don't know if you've noticed, if you follow the news, but there seems to be an increasing number of earthquakes in unusual places. They just had a 6.5 up in Idaho and Montana. 
That's one of the signs we're given in the Scriptures, Matthew 24, Luke 21, about the last days, that there would be earthquakes and diverse, which could be interpreted unusual places, places where you wouldn't normally expect them. We've had them, Oklahoma, many different places that traditionally or historically have not had them. We've seen the tornadoes, the hurricanes. Again, these things have always happened, but the issue is, are they happening more frequently and in greater intensity? And there seems to be a lot of evidence that that is the case. So I wanted to take a moment to talk about that because as we look at the first coming of Christ, which was a mission of peace and salvation, He is coming again. The second time He is coming in the manner that the Jews expected Him to come the first time. He is coming as the warrior king. The first time He came as the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When He returns, He's coming as the Lion of Judah to execute judgment. So it's very important to embrace Him in between the first coming and the second coming. Now's the time to embrace Him as the Prince of Peace, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, because if you fail to do that, you will then ultimately be the subject of His wrath when He returns as the warrior king, the Lion of Judah. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now we saw that leading up to the crucifixion, they were pretty baffled, puzzled, confused, and really in denial. Jesus, on a number of occasions, warned them that he was going to suffer death at the hands of evil men. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to believe it. We all know how that is. And that's how a lot of people react really to the truth of God's Word. It contains things that they don't want to hear. But you know what? God has given it to us because we need to hear it. We need to hear God's Word. The way we hear God's Word is by reading God's Word and allowing the Holy Spirit to bring it to life in our hearts and minds to quicken it to our understanding. But they weren't quite there yet at the time of the trial. Now, on the triumphal entry day, or tragic entry, if you agree with J. Vernon McGee, and I happen to agree with him, the disciples were pretty stoked. I mean, they're thinking, wow, three and a half years, you know, we've been traveling all over the countryside, sleeping on rocks and stuff, and having people get mad at us and kick us out of town. They weren't always well-received. There was a lot of opposition, particularly from the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And so on that day, I'm sure they were really excited. Man, we finally come into our own. The people are finally recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. So that was a great day for them. But Jesus knew what was really going on. But we find in the Scriptures that right up until the time that Christ was crucified, and in fact, that was the lowest point for them. They were totally devastated. They went into hiding. They thought that it had all been for nothing, that it was all hopeless, that Jesus was dead, and that was the end of their movement. His disciples did not understand these things at first. There's a couple of reasons at least for this. One, 
they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26, Jesus tells them prior to his crucifixion, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, Jesus is telling them, I have to go away, which made them sad, of course, to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. You know that passage. But he's encouraging them, don't be discouraged because when I do go, I'm going to send you another helper, comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. We've been talking about that a lot. We talk about the importance of remembering and how the New Testament writers like Peter and Paul, James, different ones, a big part of their mission in writing the letters that they wrote, which became the books of the New Testament, had to do with reminding people of the teachings that they had heard from the church fathers. And that's why we study the Word of God on an ongoing basis, because we do tend to forget. We get distracted by the things of this life, the things of this world. We need to be reminded. And Jesus promises that one of the ministries... One of the roles of the Holy Spirit will be to remind us. And I don't know about you, but that happens to me all the time. The Holy Spirit will remind me of a particular scripture, a particular passage. And it's very helpful as we go through life to have the comforter, the helper, the Holy Spirit living inside of us to remind us of the words of God. They had not yet received the Holy Spirit. That will happen to them. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they did not have that inner guide yet. Though they believed, they had not yet received that inner guide to speak to their hearts, to remind them, and so forth. And so they didn't understand these things at first. They had not yet really been fully enlightened. That would happen after the resurrection. Talk about a big wake-up call when you see your your mentor, your rabbi, your Lord and Savior, dead, buried in the tomb. And then yet, three days later, you see him risen from the dead. You see the wounds in his hands, the wound in his side, the wounds in his feet. And yet there he is, alive and well. That's a big wake-up call. Number two, Jesus did not fully explain all these things to them until after his resurrection. Remember the two men that he spoke with on the road to Emmaus? Cleopas, we believe, was one, and we don't know who the other one was, but they didn't recognize him at first, and as he began to expound upon the scriptures of the Old Testament to them, not only did they recognize him, but then they began to understand God's plan from the very beginning. He didn't explain all of these things until after his resurrection, which would confirm to them once and for all that Jesus, in Jesus, they'd seen the very fulfillment of Scripture. So how did their relationship with Jesus begin? He, he called them, he called the twelve, to come and hang out with him for three and a half years. And that's the same calling that we have as disciples, to hang out with Jesus. Sometimes we will see and hear things as we hang out with Jesus. Again, as we get to know him better by reading His Word, studying His Word, meditating upon His Word, we're going to see and hear things that we don't fully understand. I've been a believer since I was a young boy, 
recommitted my life to Christ at the age of 16 going on 17, right in there. And I'm a lot older now. So many years I've been walking with the Lord, and yet I still come across things in His Word that I will sometimes say, you know, I don't know if I fully understand that. It's a lifelong process. But that's where faith comes in. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. And so again, things that we see with our physical eyes sometimes don't seem to match up. But that's where faith comes in. We trust in God. We trust in the truth of His Word. Hebrews 11, 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Now once again, I would encourage you when, it, when we talk about hope, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is our sure and certain hope. We put our hope in a lot of other things, and that, those other things are not reliable. We should be hoping, first and foremost, in Him. So faith is the substance of things hoped for. Our hopes, our desires, should be rooted and grounded in the truth of God's Word. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. So just like the disciples, they walked with Jesus for three and a half years. But there are a lot of things they didn't fully understand yet. And they were walking by faith. Their faith was momentarily shaken when Christ was crucified. But when they saw him risen, their faith was not only fully restored, it became stronger than it ever had been before. So, just like them... We're called to hang out with Jesus. The more we hang out with Him, the better we get to know Him. The better we will be able to understand the things of the Spirit. The things revealed in God's Word. If we continue to hang out with Him, and Jesus refers to it as abiding in Him, living with Him, He will give us understanding and insight into spiritual things. John 15, 15, He says, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. What an amazing thing. I've talked about this a number of times that Abraham was called a friend of God. Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him or imputed to him as righteousness. How do you become a friend of God? You believe in him. You believe in the Father, you believe in the Son, you believe in the Holy Spirit. You believe in what Christ came to do, to die on the cross for the sins of the world. You believe that He accomplished that mission, that on the third day He rose from the dead, and that He has promised to all those who put their faith in Him forgiveness of sin and eternal life. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I've made known to you. And so, again, many faith systems, belief systems, religions, uh, in some cases cults, you might say, they operate under a shroud of mystery, secrecy, and if you really want to know what's going on, you've got to join their group, and then if you get perhaps to a certain level... They'll tell you some things. No, but God is just the opposite. The Old Testament is God's complete revealing and unveiling of the truths that are foundationally planted in the Old Testament. 
Jesus came to make all things known to us. That which is hidden will be made known. And he says, a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I've made known to you. So that's an awesome thing about God, about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, his scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, are given to us not to keep us in the dark, but to bring us out of darkness into the light. 1 John 2.27 The anointing which you have received from him abides in you. So there's a key phrase there, it abides in you. So what is the anointing? It's the anointing of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And you do not need anyone to teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. So what John is referring to here is that discernment that comes from having the Holy Spirit live inside you. doesn't mean we don't need to be taught by the shepherds of the flock. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about pastor teachers uh, that are raised up by God, given to the church. But the context here has to do with discerning truth from error. If we as believers are abiding in Christ, His words are abiding in us, the Holy Spirit's living inside of us, God's given us the ability to discern the truth from error. And again, as we talked about hanging out with Jesus, the more we hang out with Him, again, in prayer, reading the Scriptures, meditating upon the Scriptures, the more discernment. It, it, we're fine-tuning that discernment that He's given us. Let's move on to verse 17. Therefore the people who were with Him, when He called Lazarus out of His tomb and raised Him from the dead, bore witness... This is referring to the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, which had occurred shortly before this day of Palm Sunday. Prior to that great miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, and if you remember the story, Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, traveling down from the region of Galilee. Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus, Our brother is sick and dying. Please come quickly. And they, they knew, they believed that if Jesus were to get there in time, that he would heal Lazarus and Lazarus wouldn't die. Well, we know from the scriptures that Jesus deliberately delayed his coming uh, to Bethany, where they lived. By the time he got there, Lazarus was dead, and this was a very purposeful thing. Jesus wanted to demonstrate for the people that His promise of eternal life was not an empty promise that he could deliver. And so by waiting till Lazarus had passed, he was already in the tomb, Jesus would be able to demonstrate publicly he'd already raised some people from the dead, but he did it in a very private setting. This would be very public, very open, I have some interesting images in my own mind of that whole scenario when they would um, open the tomb and bring Lazarus out, so to speak. Remember, they warned Jesus, Lord, I don't know if you want to go in there. Um, You know, 
It's been three days. He stinketh. One of my favorite words in the King James Bible. Stinketh. <laughs> so that tells us the Jews did not practice embalming for one thing. They would wrap the body with herbs, spices, and then linen cloths. Not to preserve the body, but to minimize the stench. But of course, after a while, the stench would overcome the herbs and the spices. But I've often pictured Lazarus kind of hopping out of there with his cloths wrapped around him because when Jesus raises him, he's still wrapped. I guess that's why, like in the film industry, they'll say, that's a wrap. Got a little laughter from the small crowd here. Anyway, that was a tremendous game changer. At that point, Many people, if not most, had begun to turn away from Jesus because during his three and a half years of ministry, as time went on, his teaching became more and more intense. And it was harder and harder for some people to handle. They loved the uh, free food. It's like some churches will have a free dinner or something to draw people in. Jesus fed the 5,000 more than one occasion. They loved the free food. They loved the healings. They loved the deliverance from demons. But when things got more intense, one of the things that really turned people off was when Jesus told them, you must eat my body and drink my blood. He was speaking of his coming sacrifice on the cross he was speaking for the institution of communion or the Lord's Supper that they would need to participate in. They didn't understand the spiritual symbolism of it. They couldn't handle it, and many turned away. We know that on a number of occasions, inspired by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, people attempted to kill Jesus, push him off a cliff, stone him to death, and so forth. But by the time this day came about, Palm Sunday, there had been a tremendous revival, so to speak, in support for Jesus. Many had begun to turn away, but now a fervent new wave of evangelism had broken out in and around Jerusalem because they witnessed Jesus' power and authority over death. By the way, this is our message as well. The very foundational message of the gospel is Jesus' power and authority over death. His resurrection paved the way for the resurrection of everyone who puts their faith in him. But that moment was a big turning point. People began to flood back to Jesus because of this miracle. And so we read uh, the people who were there with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. So they're witnessing to people while this whole event is taking place. Those who saw the resurrection of Lazarus are telling people along the roadway, all over the place, this man Jesus must be the Messiah. We saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. Verse 18, for this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. And so, many of those people who had come out along the roadway 
uh, laying their clothes out, waving palm branches, laying those out along the road, came there because of this testimony of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, in some segments of the church, uh, they use a term called power evangelism. It has to do with signs and wonders. And it's promoted in some quarters as the greatest of all evangelistic tools. If you can just get someone to witness a miracle, a healing, a deliverance, or even a resurrection, then they will come to Christ. But ultimately, from what I've seen in my own life experience, plus what I see here in the Scriptures, is that the majority of those who had witnessed the miracles of Christ turned away from Him anyway. In fact, those miracles oftentimes are more of a statement against people because in spite of those miracles, they still ultimately walk away from God, walk away from Christ, choose not to believe. Uh, people will uh, rationalize what is obviously a miracle and try to come up with a natural explanation so they don't have to give God the credit. On the other hand, if you're a person of faith, I would encourage you that no matter what the source is of any given what we might call a miracle, maybe you've had a financial miracle in your life. At the very moment when you were in the greatest need, some unexpected check came in the mail. Uh, someone just gave you some money out of the blue, whatever, whatever it might be. I would encourage you, if you're a person of faith, to always give God the glory, give God the credit. He is our source. He works often through human uh, intermediaries. It's just like when you have a health crisis, a health situation. And again, as I spoke about earlier at the beginning of the message, how we're blessed to be in a time with such tremendous capacities in the world of medicine. The knowledge of the physicians, the other medical workers, the equipment, the, the medicines. Ultimately, God is our healer. Now, He may work through human beings to accomplish that healing, or He may do it directly. I'm fine with it either way. How about you? Obviously, the quickest route is the divine supernatural healing. We'll all take that anytime we can get it. But even if God works through human intermediaries, He still deserves the credit and the glory. Where did that knowledge come from? Ultimately, it comes from Him. Where did the resources needed to create those instruments, those, that machinery, those medicines, the resources all come ultimately from God. We're going to talk about here as we begin to close this message in a moment, the one miracle that really does matter, that does count. Again, you can be healed of an illness. Ultimately, though you're living in a body cursed by sin, you're still going to die someday. Even those who were raised from the dead, like Lazarus, there was a downside to being resurrected. They had to die again. But now, after the resurrection of Christ, he's the first fruits of all those who are raised from the dead, the Bible tells us. Well, anybody who is raised at the rapture, at the resurrection of the dead, well, that's good forever. Never going to die again because you're going to receive an eternal, immortal 
imperishable, incorruptible, glorified body. But those who were raised prior to the resurrection of Christ, they had to die again. Let me read this to you. Matthew 12, 38 through 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Which is interesting because they'd already seen a lot of signs from Christ. And so again, that's proof that those who are looking for these things, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, the raising from the dead of other people, the casting out of demons and so forth, people who are focused on, you know, that miracle of the moment. Lord, if you're real, you will do this for me. Well, that's really manipulation, isn't it? And who are we to try to manipulate God, to call the shots? God calls the shots. They were demanding more proof. There had already been abundant proof. We want to see a sign from you. Do another trick for us. Perform for us. And that's how some people are with God. Well, God, if you do this or that or the other, then maybe I'll believe in you. Oh, really? God says, thank you very much. Because I don't need you to believe in me. I just am. What is God called in the Scriptures? The great I am. When Moses was confronted by God in the burning bush, and God tells him, okay, Mo, (laughs) you've been on break for the last 40 years, out here in the desert, Midian tending sheep, Moses had gotten pretty used to that chill environment. And most of the time, he didn't have anybody to talk to except when he'd go home at night to his wife and kids. So it was a very quiet, isolated existence. And he was a far away from Egypt where 40 years earlier he had murdered an Egyptian and had to flee. And he was pretty content there in Midian. And then God... Uh, rattles his cage, pairs him to in a burning bush and says, I want you to go back to Egypt and deliver your people. And Moses goes, say what? I don't think so. I don't want to do that. But Moses says, okay, God who's speaking to me from the burning bush, when I get there, they're not going to believe me. Come crawling in out of the desert after 40 years. Fortunately, by that time, probably the uh, most wanted posters had been taken down from the post office in Egypt. But they're not even going to know who he is anymore. That was so long ago. And I'm going to walk in there and say, who am I supposed to say sent me? God says, tell them I am. Amazing. And then Jesus, in his time here on earth, he identified himself as He said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus did not have poor grammar. Before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I am God. I'm the same God that spoke to Moses in the burning bush. I am. Who is any human being to demand from God a sign? Prove yourself, God. I don't think I need to do that. God says, I did create the universe. In the beginning, who was there? God. 
He created the heavens and the earth. Jesus answered them and said in verse 39, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it. You hear people all the time say, well, if God's real, why doesn't he do this? Why doesn't he do that? Why does he do this or do that? Oftentimes blaming God for things that he didn't do. God didn't do this coronavirus. Because we live in a world cursed by sin, a fallen world, we have, for one thing, we have genetic degeneration. According to Dr. Rick Oliver, who's spoken here more than once, who was an evolutionary biologist before he became a Christian, he tells us that every generation of people upon the earth has a hundred more mutations than the previous generation. And by the way, in spite of what Darwinists would tell you, all mutations are negative. They're never positive. Mutations create degeneration. They don't improve you. You get worse with every mutation. And that's again a result of the fallen condition of the human race. So just naturally, as time goes on, every generation has a hundred more mutations. And so we see today people are living longer because we have all the tremendous medical help that we have. But at the same time, it seems like we see more and more people with diabetes, more and more people with cancer and so forth. And I believe that's a direct result of the genetic degeneration that we're experiencing. So we can't blame God for the result of sin. God warned Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And that was the day that death began. Began. Death is an ongoing process. After the fall of man, every generation of human beings that's born into this world really, in a sense, immediately begins down the pathway to death. That's why God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross because He doesn't want us to die. He didn't create us to die. He created us to live forever. So He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. God doesn't have to give us a sign. He's already given us a sign, as we'll see here in a moment. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We know the whole story of Jonah, don't we? God called him to go to preach to the people of Nineveh, a wicked, evil city over in the region of Babylon. Jonah didn't want to go. He didn't want to do it. He didn't like those people. He didn't really care if they perished or not. He was afraid they were not going to treat him very well. He fled. He ran the other way. We know what happened. He got thrown off of the boat. By his own request, he knew that he was endangering the lives of everybody on board. Swallowed by the great fish, which there have been other historical accounts of this happening we don't know how well validated or documented they are, but it, it certainly is possible for someone to live for three days in the belly of a large giant whale. There's plenty of room down there. Probably not a place you'd want to hang out. 
but there's plenty of oxygen too. At any rate, at the end of the three days, Jonah is coughed up for, for avoiding a more vulgar description of what happened. He's coughed up onto the beach alive. And so Jesus says, I'm going to be just like that. I'm going to be in the belly of the earth. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus says, that's the sign I'm going to give you. I'm not going to put on a dog and pony show for you. I'm not going to do tricks for you. I'm not going to perform miracles to you to prove who I am. I don't need to. I know who I am. I know why I'm here. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to willingly lay down my life on the cross for the sins of the world. But I will give you this one sign that I will conquer death and I will rise from the dead on the third day. So as Jonah emerged after three days alive and well to lead the people of Nineveh to repentance and salvation, Jesus emerged after three days to lead all those who would believe to salvation and eternal life. So in spite of the fact that on that day 2,000 years ago, give or take a few, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey presenting himself to the people, that was the one and only time that he officially, publicly presented himself as their Messiah. He knew full well that they didn't really understand who he was, what he came to do. But it was necessary for him to do that, to present himself to the people. Unfortunately, they did miss the message. But over the last 2,000 years, countless millions of people have embraced the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, the Savior of the world as their own personal Messiah, Anointed One, Savior. And we look forward. I would encourage you today, by the way, as we close, join those millions and millions of people if you've not done so. I know that during this past presidential election, President Trump had told a certain group of people, a certain segment of, the, uh, of our society, try me. What have you got to lose? You've been trying the other side for a long time. They haven't done anything for you. Try me. What have you got to lose? I think he might have thrown an expletive in there, which I'll leave out. But what have you got to lose? And so I would say that to those watching today. The skeptical, the doubting, the unbelieving. What have you got to lose? If we're wrong and you're right, then by giving God the opportunity to make himself known to you, to show himself real to you, you haven't lost anything, but if we're right and you're wrong and you refuse him, you've lost everything. I would encourage you today, don't make the mistake that those people in Jerusalem made 2,000 years ago. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, they initially welcomed him, celebrated, but they didn't really understand why he came. They missed the whole point. He didn't come to destroy the Romans, to reestablish the throne of David or any of that. He came to save the world 
from our sins. And so you can invite him in. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. I would encourage you today. Because after that entry, he looks out over the city and he weeps. He says, man, if you'd only known. He didn't say, man, I threw that in. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you to myself like a hen gathers her chicks. Take you under my wing, but you would not. They missed their day of visitation. Don't miss your day of visitation. This could be that day for you. Although God pursues us, I believe, throughout our lives. I do think there are moments in time where we have a special time of visitation where God's making an effort, extra effort to reach us. Because really, I mean, if you keep rejecting him, he'll say, okay, I don't want to bother you. I'll leave you alone. Don't miss your day of visitation. Statistically, they've shown that the older a person gets, the less likely they are to receive Christ. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because there's an ongoing hardening of the heart that takes place over the years of a person's life. The longer you put God off, the longer you reject Him, the easier it gets, the harder your heart becomes. And very interestingly, those statistics show this. You know where the cutoff point is? Where God can do anything, okay? God's a God of miracles. He can save you whether you're 7 or 70 or whatever. But statistically, they've shown numerically by the time a person reaches 70 years of age, which is the biblically mandated age for most people to live to 70, 80 years if you have the strength. Statistically, numerically, to put a spiritual equation into a numerical equation, at the age 70, the likelihood that you will become a believer is 0%. Why is that important? Because that means you don't want to wait that long. Now, if you're 70 or over, guess what? The good news, you can still receive Christ. The bad news, you may not want to. I encourage you to step out on faith. What have you got to lose? I'll tell you what you've got to lose. If Jesus is who he says he is. Now, it's been pointed by those who uh, practice the field of apologetics. Josh McDowell, in particular, has this to say about Jesus. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Those are the only three options. I believe he's the Lord. If you believe it otherwise, put him to the test. Give him the chance to prove himself to you by inviting him into your heart to be your Lord and Savior. Now that miraculous sign that leads all men to Christ has already occurred. It is the resurrection. Next week we will celebrate that together. I am going to lead those who would like to receive Christ in a prayer as we close this morning. If you'd like to open the door to God, to His Son Jesus, the Holy Spirit, if you would like to take that leap of faith, that you would like to acknowledge that sign that He has given to us, 
It really doesn't matter that much if he gives you a new car, a new house, a new job, or whatever. Or even if he heals you from a physical illness, because as I mentioned, still going to die anyway. The one way to guarantee and assure that you will never really die, as Jesus told Martha, she came out to meet him on the road, Lord, what happened if you'd have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Jesus conquered death when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. What have you got to lose? Pray with me now. Father God, I thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins. I'm amazed, Father, that you love me that much, that you would allow your own Son to suffer and die because of me. Thank you, Father for the forgiveness that you've offered me by putting my faith in your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I ask you to wash me and cleanse me from any and every sin, all sin. Thank you for shedding your blood on the cross of Calvary to pay the price for my sins. Now, Lord Jesus, I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Come and live inside of me. Strengthen my faith. Give me strength to believe in you, to live for you, to follow you, until that day when I see you face to face. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. Amen.